we assume that we know absolutely how these things work. And we have some numbers to say that, you know, to, to back us up in here. But in all honesty, we don't. That's the real truth. We don't have the complete picture of, of, of how this stuff works. And, and I, I think admitting that is the smart thing to do. Pretending that we do have a 100%, you know, picture of the world. That's crazy. Hello and welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Benjamin. One of the key questions we are always asking industry experts, be it in our reporting or at our conferences, is what makes for effective media? Is it all about excellent creative? Is it about perfect placement? Or is it, in the words of Kendall Roy from Succession, all simply about harvesting eyeballs? Mike Follett, Managing Director at Lumen Research and a regular columnist for The Media Leader, is back on the podcast today to discuss the key factors that make media effective. Mike, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Um, as I just alluded to, you, you joined us previously for a discussion all about the state of the attention economy earlier this year with Karen Nelson Field of Amplified Intelligence. If you're listening to this now and haven't listened to that episode, I would highly recommend it. It was an excellent conversation. But today I'm excited to talk to you not just about attention, but also about what attention is really meant to help us better understand, which is how to improve advertising in a variety of different ways. And also, back on the podcast today, I should note, is our very own editor, Omar Oaks. Woo! Good to have you back on, Omar. I'm glad you're so excited to be here. Oh, it's not me. It's the crowd. It's the crowd oh, that's right. watching this. They're going wild. But it's doing it in person. This is astonishing. And the, and the kit you have here is very, very professional. This is, this is high-quality journalism and high-quality podcasting. Oh, thank you so much. Um, before we get into a broader discussion on effectiveness, I did want to ask you, Omar, you, you wrote a column for us about... Uh, Threads, which is Instagram's new microblogging service, and how it likely spells the end for Twitter, or at least from from your perspective, for for you, for your own personal use. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Threads and Twitter are the same one to one type of service. Tell me what have your been what have been your reactions to the new Threads being launched and. Do advertisers even care about this? I mean, it's been in the news so much. We've done multiple reports on it. I'm mentioning it now again. Should we even care? Um, they definitely care. I mean, they, they, they definitely care about something that Facebook or Meta, as we're duty bound to call them now, it's their company name, um, does something. And, you know, last I checked, it was over 130 million users on the platform now. So it's unignorable. Um, no, I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it's not going to kill Twitter because the thing that's killing Twitter is Twitter. Um, namely Elon Musk and a load of the balmy decisions he's made. I mean, um, just the latest being, it was it 10 days ago, at the time of this recording, he decided to limit the number of tweets that anyone who didn't have a verified account, which you have to pay for now, um, the, limiting the number of tweets normal people can see. That, if you're an advertiser, limiting any opportunities for reach building is balmy, quite frankly. And it's no surprise mm. that year on year, there was a report in the New York Times not so long ago saying that ad revenue is down 60% year on year. That's unprecedented for a media company which almost entirely relies on advertising. That's unprecedented. So, no, it's, it's, it's I mean, we can get into it if you like, but um, there, there are various pros and cons that I can see of whether Threads is going to be successful, but it's definitely not killing Twitter. Twitter is killing Twitter. Mm. But do you think, Omar, that what's weird about this is that it, it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck. But in actual fact, Threads is in many ways nothing like Twitter. Mm. Because Twitter, you know, in its heyday, 
was born not because of the ease of communication, but because of the people on Twitter. Mm. It was the community of interesting people and then having one-to-one conversations with stars or thought leaders or whatever it was that actually exist as real people. And you go on, on threads, there might be 135 million people in there and got on them. And that's, that's pretty impressive in a week. But do you, want to have, do you want to talk to any of those 135 million people? Do you really care about what any of them have to say? Mm. That, well, was, that, was, that was a criticism of Twitter in the first place as well. I mean, why did anyone care about what people had to say on Twitter? And why should people care about what people have to say on threads? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the point I made in my column. I mean, you know, people bandy around the word Twitterati. I mean, what are we talking about? We're talking about celebrities, journalists... Even marketing, advertising people, you know, those are those are the Twitterati, the people who are really engaged. Outside of that elite circle of people, the people that microphones are the people that normal people would want to talk to. And, oh, wow, blah, 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 I like my comment. But, um, mm. you know, outside of that, it's just a bunch of charlatans, performance artists, trolls. And, you know, it's why it hasn't over the years made for a very nice, I'm looking for a better word, a very nice um, experience for most users because it descends into performative, slanging matches, um, people, you know, coming down on people really hard, even for the slightest thing, contributing to cancel culture. Um, it's not a nice environment. So, you know, when Mike, you say it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and, you know, I appreciate the differences. I think the clever thing is that they've built it out of Instagram. So you have that instant, you know, by latest estimates, Instagram's, what, 1.3 billion users? Billion? Um, that you know, so you know they've got ten percent of that converted to threads already. If they can, I mean, Facebook traditionally hasn't been very good at this, but if they can R and D this properly, add new features which are attractive that actually take the best of Instagram, that visual element, that aspirational element to the platform, and don't make it like a Twitter copycat, then I think potentially it could be successful and actually, you know, maybe go towards what social media, the paradigm we all thought that maybe it could be democratizing even journalism, but democratizing self-publishing. Perhaps. I'm not hopeful, but we'll see. Mm. There's a difference between being successful in terms of giving users perhaps a, a good platform to live on and also being commercially successful. And Twitter was never commercially successful. I think it only had one quarter of turning a profit. Um, and this sort of gets to the broader discussion that I wanted to talk to you about today, which is effectiveness in the sense of uh, threads. I'm not sure they, they haven't really started advertising in earnest on that site, but Advertisers were never that attracted to Twitter anyway, because in a way, Twitter was just not a particularly effective digital medium. Um, at least that's according to a number of people that I've spoken to and, and columnists as well uh, that, that have written in for us. So in terms of the business end, I mean, what do we think? Do we think that Meta has captured lightning in a bottle from Twitter or not so much? I think Omar's right. If, it, if it's going to be successful, it's going to be successful because it's not like Twitter. Mm. Um, it's not as uh, rambunctious, but also it's not as you know, racist or mm. you know, um, or, or, or misogynist or something. And, and I, I bet the guys at Meta will do a much better job of creating that sort of environment there. But also, what I think about is just the geometry of the site. One of the reasons why Instagram and Facebook are so successful and TikTok as well, and other, is that the, uh, in terms of an, an advertising platform, is that they have full screen ads that take over the whole of the, the, the screen, unavoidable. And, you know, I work for an eye tracking company, so we collect data about this. 
things like stories, things like reels, things like lots of TikTok stuff or some of the uh, Pinterest formats and the watch uh, screen that they have get tons of attention. And that's because they are massive great ads, take over the whole of the screen and, and, and sometimes even force you to, 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 to watch at least the first couple of seconds before you move on. They are the most successful ones there are not in feed experiences. You know, the great wonder of Twitter is that you could scroll through it very, very fast, mm. see lots of stuff, but sort of whiz past the ads. Uh, and if Threads is going to be successful it, as an advertising platform, you know, quite apart from you know a, a, a Twitter copy or not, uh, but if it's going to be successful as an advertising platform, it has to learn the, this, this great big lesson from the likes of Instagram and the likes of uh, Facebook proper about these big full-screen ads. Now, that, I think, probably militates against a really rich in-feed in Twitter-like experience, you know. And so that's why I think that if Threads is going to be successful, it's going to, it, it, soon it's going to look really quite different from what we have come to expect from, from Twitter. And the ad experience is going to be necessarily very, very different too. Mm. Can you expand beyond sort of Threads and Twitter and tell me what makes ads particularly attention-grabbing um, outside of necessarily digital? But, but so made so often... I've heard that people in the industry now see attention as an increasingly important part of what drives effectiveness in advertising, because if you don't have someone looking at the ad, then surely it can't be that effective. So what are the places, what are the main drivers that do drive that attention, that do drive potentially that effectiveness as well? Well, at Luma, we collect data about tons and tons of different media. So um, I was over in Cannes uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about our work we've done in the cinema industry. We've done lots of about gaming, mobile phones. We're the, the official research agency for Root, the out-of-home industry. You know, so we've got a, a really broad r range of information uh, about what people look at and what people ignore when they're um, uh, when they're going about life. And um, the first big thing uh, is size. <laughs> Big ads get more attention than little ads. And this is one of the reasons why cinema is so fantastically uh, brilliant at getting people to look at things and perhaps why some digital display banners are pretty easy to ignore. So size makes a big difference. Time in view makes a big difference. If your ad is playing for a long time, then you have a longer chance, you know, a greater chance of looking at it or looking at it for longer. If it just flips straight past in the feed, like we were talking about beforehand, then it's much, much easier to ignore. Or, or if you do notice it, you just glance, you know, you, you look at it so that you can reject it and go, oh, it's just an ad and, and move on. And then other things like clutter. Mm. Um, so clutter on the page makes a big difference, making sure your ads are served one at a time, but also sort of mental clutter. One of the reasons why cinema is so fantastic is that as you enter the cinema, they dim the lights and they tell you to put your mobile phone away. <laughs> I mean, they essentially lock you in a black box so that you can do nothing but look at the ads. Now, that is very much one extreme of one's ad experience. No other media does that. But we can, what we can learn from that is that when people are distracted, when they've got other things to do, when they're in a hurry or they've got millions of other things competing for their attention, so uh, they don't necessarily look at the ads. So with those sort of things, those size, time, clutter, you know, those are the, the big drivers. Um, and then actually really, I mean, you know, clients pay us a lot of money for, for that sort of information, but, but <laughs> basically it's pretty common sense after that. You know, you, you could probably do most of your media planning 
on the basis of, of um, you know, buying big, bold ads that people notice. Uh, you know, you, that, that's most of the value. I mean, we're charging people for listening to this podcast. I mean, I probably... <laughs> probably uh, we, we might start after this. We'll really? See, we'll I mean, see, we'll I'm going to get any residuals from we'll this, test having, you having given away all the, all the big learnings. But what? But, but, how, I'm interested to know, I mean, clearly things probably would have changed over the years, but from your perspective, Mike, how much are marketers receptive to that? I mean, you say it's common sense, but it also comes down to how much they're willing to pay for certain forms of advertising. So, you know, we, you've you've described in the past Facebook as an outdoor company, the world's biggest outdoor company, because, you know, traditionally you go, you scroll for your feed and they're like outdoor ads, mm. social media display ads, right? Um, and so, you know, you, if you're a marketer, you're thinking, well, Facebook, you know, they're over a billion people using Facebook still, um, you know, why not just have, you know, with all that reach, just create cheap and cheerful display ads that are like outdoor ads for the digital space. And I probably get, you know, better ROI overall than... Listen, you're going to have to stop giving away all our secrets, Omar. That's exactly what we tell people to do. Uh, yeah, no, the, the, the first thing is your apps are... Jack's absolutely right about, like, the, the buying and selling of our eyeballs. This attention stuff is nothing new. Advertising has always been about uh, uh, gaining attention. Um, you know, the word itself, ad advertere, to turn towards, you know, from the, from the Latin. That's what advertising is about. So measuring, we've always known this, but we've never really, until recently, had the technology or the predictive modelling to be able to do anything about it. So I think there's an instrumental reason here that... When we first started 10 years ago, I kept on telling people, you know what, people aren't necessarily always looking at the ads. And that was sort of met with some resistance. You go, all you're doing is telling me a problem. There's nothing you could do to, to, to resolve this problem for me. And actually now, the second reason why I think people are doing it is that there is something you can do about it. Um, we have worked very, very hard to, to build measurement solutions, but also activation solutions. So you can actually go and buy ads that are more likely to get looked at and avoid wasting money on stuff that might be viewable but ain't going to get any attention. Um, you know, we're doing this big deal with, with IAS, or so Integral Ad Science at the moment, um, to sort of democratise this across the world so that you, all their customers can get access to Lumen data like that. That's, again, quite a big reason why people are talking about this, because it's not just talking about a problem, but you can actually act on this insight and, and, and make a killing. At, I mean, when, when we were talking with Karen Nelson-Field, one of the things that we were in desperate agreement about was the fact that there? this is the moment where there is going to be some sort of attention arbitrage mm. where you can find the good stuff and pay, relatively speaking, quite low amounts for it and, until such time as the publishers suddenly realise, holy crap, I'm sitting on a gold mine here, I need to, to increase my CPMs. So there is this moment of opportunity uh, 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 right now because people can act on it. So attention has always been a big thing. But now we can we can do something about it. I think that's one of the reasons why everyone's uh, 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 talking about this uh, so much more now. Mm. Yeah, Omar. I mean, you've been reporting on effectiveness more broadly for a long time. You know, attention I've noticed has become, as Mike said, a really big conversation recently, and just a broader conversation around media effectiveness. Have you noticed any shifts? Um, you mentioned people have been talking about all these issues for a long time, but is it really just, well, here's maybe a solution, so that's why it comes up in conversation a bit more today? Yeah, I mean, you know, writing about advertising for a number of years, we hear a lot about creative effectiveness, a lot of what Mike's just been talking about. Um, you know, people like System One doing very good work on that um, and, you know, giving us insights such as 
people like animals and bright <laughs> colours. And, you know, again, it sounds like common sense, but actually when you have data to prove it, then um, you start having some interesting conversations about how you tweak things in a world in which you can do dynamic, creative optimization. you know, actually kind of use the data that you have people and start using potentially AI even to serve different messages to different people and use your creative to do that. And But in terms of media effectiveness, um, you know, the... You know, it says, you know, in essence, we're talking about how well each media channel performs. And, you know, the jargon is attribution, um, how much an ad campaign, how much of that success of your sales uplift or whatever your marketing objective is, how much you can attribute that to TV, to cinema, to out of home, whatever. Um, what's changed really is the pandemic. You know, it, it, you know, accelerated this huge shift to online we've been seeing, particularly in connected TV. That's probably why people like Mike, why you probably, the pandemic in the nicest possible way has been a good time for business because, you know, people, you know, connected TV is, you know, now more of a focus for marketers than it was before. Alongside that, cookie deprecation, you know, we're not, you know, we, you know we've had this conversation 10 years ago, a lot of marketers think, well, we just, we target and retarget people. You know, we all heard the cliche about, you know, you search for some Nike trainers one day and all you see in your online ads the next week is online trainers, you know, because of cookie deprecation, because of GDPR, because of, frankly, that cliche becoming a truism in the market. Marketers are wise to that. Consumers are wiser to that. Um, attention is one of those ways in which actually you see a world in which you don't target people, you don't retarget people as much anymore. You can actually measure and potentially have a currency um, for measuring your online effectiveness um, from a media perspective, yeah, I think you're right about this sort of um, both the push and the pull. There's a there are some sort of pull factors here. Of wouldn't it be better to buy the good stuff and avoid the bad stuff? And clever traders using this sort of information and you know, either for planning or for for actual buying of of, of media. Uh, and so there's a, there's a real commercial advantage to do that. But at the same time, I think you're absolutely right. There are these push factors the death of the cookie, the recession that has always been a month away for the last 18 months <laughs> has led people to be far more interested in avoiding wastage. How can I do more with less? How can I um, justify the budgets um, uh, that I've got? And attention data is quite a good way of sort of sorting the wheat from the chaff there. Um, and I think that it's understanding that there are uh, both factors are pushing people in the same direction, that people might be coming to the same conclusions out of fear or out of greed, but either way, the, the, this is the way forward uh, for things. And, and, and I think CTV is a particularly good example uh, of this. Um, we've just recently launched a, a CTV product uh, in partnership with our chums at um, uh, T-Vision uh, and their panel. So we collect lots and lots of data, and then just as we've built predictive models for Facebook and for um, you know, YouTube and whatever, we've also now got predictive models of attention for CTV. So you can have the same sort of attention insight uh, for, for TV campaigns. Why is that important? Well, it's because CTV has suddenly become a thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, understanding that uh, this isn't a niche, tiny little sort of catch-up TV market, but it's now well, probably going to be the way in which we all watch TV for the next 50 or 100 years, suddenly the market has has scale. And 
And because it's got scale, it suddenly has problems, you know, problems of fraud and problems of, uh, uh, of non-human traffic and, and problems of attention. So CTV is a really nice example here of the pull factors of everyone going, this is a big market, we need to understand it and optimise to these things, but also instantaneously some, some push factors as well, driving people towards using this attention stuff, even in this new market. Mm. Omar, you brought up uh, the fact that attention may or may not be used as a currency, potentially. Um, Mike, I know this has been a really hot-button issue for attention experts like yourself of whether or not people can can trade on attention metrics. What is your take on that? I mean, there, there seems to be so many questions around how easy it is. You know, do you want to just buy two seconds of someone's attention, but then you don't necessarily know all these other questions around it such as is it positive attention do they feel really good about seeing this or do they feel really bad about seeing this or there's all this other sort of attention itself only tells you so much i think we talked about that with karen uh, a few months back can you elaborate a little bit on this topic well all the big advertisers have been talking about this and have uh, finally prevailed upon people like the wfa but more importantly as was the iab the internet advertising bureau bureau um to so that sort of outsourced the problem to the IB and to the ARF, the um, uh, Advertising Research Foundation in New York. And both of these organisations are currently running listening and learning uh, uh, projects to define what we mean by attention, you know, because there are many different definitions and just sort of align on what we mean uh, by that. And then perhaps think about what, how you, if, once you've got a de- definition, what, how you, how you create a standard or create some, some sort of potentially in the future, you know, have a discussion about whether or not it should be a currency. And we can come and talk about that in a second. I urge all your listeners uh, on both sides of the Atlantic to go and uh, visit the ARF.org uh, website or the um, IAB USA website and have a look up the, uh, I think it's called the Attention Task Force run by uh, Angelina Eng, because this is the moment, this you know, the, 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 this is where the, the big guys have, have come together and said, right, we really have to have a proper dis- discussion about this. Both organisations seem at the moment to be uh, making quite an important distinction between human attention and proxy metrics. So, you know, different people have different perspectives on this, but it seems that there's an emerging consensus that when we're talking about attention, uh, there has to be a human involved in some form of initial data collection. So there's companies like Lumen, Amplified Intelligence, um, Playground, XYZ, T-Vision, but also non-visual attention. There are people who are doing very interesting things with sound or smell or something like that. But all of these companies collect some data and then build predictive models of attention based on that human data. Uh, And then you can use that data to buy and sell media and all that sort of stuff, but the predictive model is based on some sort of initial ground truth data, whatever that might be. There are other alternatives which are far more sort of viewability, enhanced viewability metrics. There's no, they don't have any ground truth data, but they say it just stands to reason that ads that are on screen for a while or that have been in this location or that location will probably get more uh, attention data, but attention of some sort. I don't know how you justify that. I mean, you know, it's just it's, it's an assumption based on nothing. So it's quite important, I think, for the industry to sort of realise that 
you, you know, human attention data is required if you're going to be talking about attention. And I think I think that's probably the way in which um, that distinction between attention stuff and, and enhanced viewability is probably where where it's going to go uh, in, in terms of the debate. Mm. Do you think attention should be traded as a currency? Well, that is a second <laughs> and, and, and perhaps far more complicated question. I mean, in a sense, it already is. Um, I mean, you know, uh, people trade stuff, you know, it could be shells or uh, pieces of paper or... Bitcoin. Inside, yeah, exactly, Bitcoin or, you know, in prisons, people, you know, trade cigarettes or whatever it is. There's always some form of... It's a means of exchange here. Mm. And lots of people are already buying and selling stuff on the basis of attention without having some sort of industry body, you know, put the king's head you know, on the coin to to determine that this is legitimate stuff. It'll. I don't know if it'll ever get to a stage where um, yet you you have an absolute guarantee of attention for for things because there's so many other. We're just talking about creative stuff or all the other bits and pieces. I mean, it's pretty complicated uh, out there. But having the data as some form of sort of trading information, it, it's already happening. And if you want to call that a currency, then it's okay. I mean, it's interesting actually having a publisher. Here, I mean, I mean, Omar. One of the things that people are saying is, well, perhaps they could come and do a deal with you and an ad wanted, and say, can you guarantee me, you know, a thousand seconds of attention or or, or what what have you? I know when when we've spoken about this in the past. I mean, that sounds like a, a rum deal because you don't get to control the creative, or you don't get to control. You know, that, that's putting a lot of pressure on you and taking it off the the buy side. When would you go and do that deal? Uh, it doesn't sound like it, <laughs> quite frankly. I mean, yeah, in an, in an ideal world where the, the, the problem is, is that there is, a, there is an equation with a lot of unknown variables, creative multiplied by media placement, multiplied by lots of external factors. Again, to trot out that old John Wanamaker quote, you know, half of my advertising works, I just don't know which half, mm. you know. It's it, it's it's really it's really complicated, as you say. I, th- I think there still needs to be an ethos in this community about supporting the idea that media should be a creative medium, not just you know we were talking about targeting before. You know that it, there is a spectrum, and on either end there is creativity. That you know, no matter who you are, a great idea is just going to reach you. And on the other hand, it's just well, I know everything about you, so I don't need to be creative because I could just tell you what you want because I know everything, right? <laughs> Um, and media really should be sitting somewhere within that spectrum, right? Um, so it doesn't sound like to me on its face whether I would want to do that deal. I would still want to sit on that spectrum where you still have the mystique of the creative and almost not knowing kind of what's going to be the most attentive thing of every single part of your media content or your ad inventory. I still think there needs to be some of that unknown. Otherwise, then you could just game the system to the nth degree. Well, either you set your standards so low, you know, that, 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 that this attention guarantee that you're talking about isn't really worth the paper it's written on or the docu-sign that it's written on, uh, whatever it is. Um, and I think also, I think it's a really sophisticated point to say that you don't know. I say that all the time. Really, funny, you're a very sophisticated person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, only an idiot would claim to be able to predict with 100% precision what's going to happen in the future. That in, that's you know, claiming that you can absolutely guarantee that this is going to happen or that should 
set the alarm bells ringing that this guy is an idiot. Um, <laughs> so, but because of all those complexities, what we're dealing with here is a series of probabilities. And it's that sort of probabilistic thinking that is, you know, that doesn't absolutely guarantee anything and says there is going to be a bell curve here and there are going to be outliers on either side and that's just how the world works. That's that's the smart thing to say. It's not an admission of defeat. It's an, instead a, it's an admission of, of of the reality of the world. I think it's a re, I think it's really really important that we, as an industry, get back to that. I mean, we talking about effectiveness, um, you know, in, in the board attention data is part of that story, but it's not the, the full story. But the thing is, there isn't a full story in a sense. It's always a partial and incomplete story. Um, one of the one one of the problems I think has happened in in our industry is not just that the timescales for effectiveness have dropped and dropped and dropped. So people are assuming that advertising works almost instantaneously, and that you can tweak and optimize things to to, to drive this or that and the other over a matter of weeks or, or days or weeks rather than months or years. I mean that that timescale thing is irritating itself, but also. That the reason why we have these ludicrous short timescales is because we are testing things in terms of clicks and conversions and and, and, and very very superficial brand lift studies that are, that happen sort of overnight and using that sort of false precision to think that we've learned something. You know, we 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 assume that we know absolutely how these things work. And we have some numbers to say that, you know, to, to back us up in here. But in all honesty, we don't. That's the real truth. We don't have the complete picture of, of how this stuff works. And, and I, I think admitting that is the smart thing to do. Pretending that we do have a 100 percent, you know, picture of the world. That's crazy. Mm. It's important to embrace uncertainty. I mean, in, in I would argue all aspects of life, probably, and not just this necessarily. But to, to admit that you don't what you don't know is uh, is of course always important, no matter what you're doing. Basically, it's, it's an inter- sorry, Mike. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting point actually because you, I mean, you mentioned can two three weeks ago, um, and you look at you know it's a it's a creative ad industry festival, and a lot of people you know are lamenting how. You know, there's so much more purposeful work nowadays because it feels like it's the safe thing to do. You feel like, and this comes bringing back to media, you just feel like marketers are just wanting to de-risk the whole operations all over the place. And I wonder if everything, underpinning everything we've just been talking about is just marketers just wanting to be safe and not looking stupid in front of the CFO when they're talking about return on investment and, you know, why all the kids are on TikTok, why aren't we spending on TikTok, but why can't we measure it, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I, the, the, it sounds like the three dirtiest words in marketing right now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, one is, you know, if you don't know, then why don't, why, you know, why haven't you found this out? We've got information coming out of um, every orifice at the moment. But I think it, it, this word risk, I think, is really, really important. You know, and this is slightly tangential, so, you know, still, let's go with it. One of the reasons why marketers don't take risk is that marketers get sacked an awful lot more frequently than they than they used to. The average life expectancy in a job uh, for a marketing director is 18 months or so. That's down from 27 months. Uh, you know, it used to be two, two, three years when I was uh, when I was starting twenty years ago, and and even then people said it's only two or three years. You know, in the old days it was five. I think this lack of job security for white collar workers, uh, and especially those people who work in marketing, 
uh, and the absolute desire to, pr- to, to numerically prove your value means that people are not happy to sit and wait uh, to see if things are going to, uh, to, to pan out because you need instant results. And I wonder actually if, if AI is going to make this even worse. I was just going to ask that. I mean, I mean, yeah, because you could replace quite easier than, than you could before, potentially. Yeah, lots I mean, we've, di- had, we've had industrialization which has screwed over working class jobs, and we went, oh, God, by, you, know, you young miners, you're just going to have to learn how to do this. Now the machines are coming for our jobs, and suddenly we have this terrifying, you know, skills ob- obsolescence where all the things that we learned how to do before and then bloody useless. I imagine that's probably going, you know, going to lead to a world and where you go, well, the computer made me do it. And, and, and trusting in AI and trusting in, in, in programmatic and not really being happy with any level of uncertainty. Yes, it's crap. But I predicted it was going to be crap. I have. <laughs> I promised uh, that it was going to be going to be bland and boring, and I have achieved my uh, my <laughs> objectives. You know that I think is, you know, th- th- there might be a, a deep economic uh, a driver uh, for this. Much more about job security than about creativity in business. Mm. I'd like to move us on to our quick hit section. It's a really good place to leave it. I think. Lots to be uncertain about, basically. In in the next section, sort of more topical question that I'd like to ask, and we can breeze through them as fast as, as you'd like. But by the time this episode airs, the Women's World Cup will be just days away. Mike, you, you wrote actually a really lovely column for us about the Men's World Cup last uh, November, I believe, talking about what ads did the best in terms of attention specifically. I'm curious, number one, what are you looking for for the Women's World Cup? Would you imagine advertisers will or should they do anything differently that they might have done from the Men's World Cup in terms of grabbing people's attention and making really effective advertisements in and around coverage of the event? Well, the first thing is it'd be great if the big banks and the big booze companies supported the Women's World Cup in the same way they do the Men's World Cup. You know, uh, they're still looking for the big sponsors, even at this uh, stage, Mm. the money at stake is. So make sure the big guys come along. And then I think just make sure that it's about the the football rather than about the gender of the people playing it. I think the the way in which we can make sure the Women's World Cup is as successful as the Men's World Cup is to make sure that we realise that these are professional athletes doing astonishing things because they are amazing sports people uh, rather than uh, necessarily harping on on, on one aspect of uh, of their identity. Probably the biggest news story this week, uh, the week that we're recording, is the issues around the BBC. Um, has, there been, has there been news about the BBC? I'm not aware. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, because I thought they were supposed to report news, but there's actually news about them as well. Yeah, which they're, is, they're good at that as well. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, lots of scandals going on. By the time this comes out, I'm sure there will be further developments, so I don't necessarily want to get into the details of this particular uh, 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 investigation that's going on around BBC presenter, um, who we still don't know. So... That's kind of the question I want to ask is, post-Levison, the privacy of individuals named in these types of reports has been a major focus. My question is, and it seems like lots of people in the media, Omar, you you just sort of smiled and nodded and did a sort of like, 
well, people might know who the person is, but can't say. How useful is that type of policy? Is essentially the question that I want to ask. It's it's a really messy, horrible situation. You know, if if this if this was as you say before Leveson over ten years ago, um, the son would have just named the presenter. Hmm. And even if it was a breach of privacy, um, if it turned out to be a libel, um, well, you'd hope that they were pretty clear about what they were reporting. But you know, since Leveson, there have been added privacy regulations, and the Sun, you know, frankly, isn't. It's still a big news brand, but it isn't as big as it used to be. So it can't withstand the reputational or potentially financial damage that just recklessly naming an alleged misdemeanors or crimes, even by a BBC news presenter. They just can't do that in the way that maybe they would have in the eighties and nineties. Um, unfortunately, um, what it has led is to now this guessing game, where. I, I, you know, I'm sure they would have actually been well aware that as soon as they published the story, there would be a huge kind of social media uh, witch hunt going on, and you know, it's just completely un- unedifying to see, you know, people like Jeremy Vine and Graham Norton or whoever kind of like coming out and saying that, oh no, it's not me, it's not me, and you know, we're all playing, you know, what's that game? Connect, connect. Guess who? We have to flip down the faces. So we're all doing that on social media now. And, you know, there are lots of rumours about who this person is. Do you think, though, that one of the things about the Murdoch owned press is that they have it, have it in for the BBC? And the one person, the one organisation that we do know is connected is it's this BBC uh, personality that, I mean, in actual fact, in an odd sort of way, from a commercial point of view, the Sun has got exactly what it's wanted, which is a week's worth of negative headlines. Uh, there is a definite loser in in this horrible story, uh, and no matter what, what comes out of the truth about it, but the the, the loser really is the, the British Broadcasting Corporation, who has been dragged through the mud pretty consistently every day this week, and and perhaps probably up until the day of this broadcast, it will continue. Mm. Yeah. Last question, it would be a shame if I didn't ask an eye-tracking expert of what he thinks of the new Apple Vision Pro, or more broadly, the developments in AR and VR, and, I mean, the amazing technology, in my opinion, from from the tech demo, at least, that I've seen. It is an astonishing piece of kit. They do know what they're doing over there. Um, They are very, very clever people. And they are extremely good at uh, uh, developing not just the kit, but the infrastructure around it. I think what's interesting, though, is that they're already cutting their order books. Mm-hmm. Having said that this is for opinion leaders and, and content creators rather than for hoi polloi like me, they had an initial sort of production run of X hundred thousand uh, things, but they're already cutting that. Now, as a message to the industry, if the greatest technology company of the last 100 years with the greatest product um, uh, of the last uh, 20 years in in making this happen, if they're already cutting their their budget on that, then I think that's probably telling you that someone very smart over at Apple is now suddenly having some pretty cold feet about this uh, as a market. I mean, it's an amazing piece of kit, but I don't know if it's going to lead anywhere mm. uh, in the long term. Well, there also, I'm sure, is an issue of supply as well in terms of, I mean, supply costs are still recovering from COVID. And it seems like a very complicated piece of kit as well. So it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, that decision I, well, yeah, no, comes absolutely. But do I do not think that the clever people at, at Apple you know, probably knew that beforehand. I think, I think as a message to the market, 
that's one of the most important sort of uh, rug pulls that we've seen in the last few years. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, apart from perhaps Amazon, if you put them in the same bucket, you know, Amazon is probably the the world's best logistics company and probably the best at handling supply chain. I'd put Apple probably number two. Um, So I I tend to agree. I mean, what is it going to cost, like $4,000 after tax? I mean, this is a huge amount of money. Um, And despite, you know, wheeling out Bob Iger to talk about, yeah, we're going to have Disney content all over, you know, which which is great and exactly what they should be doing. Um, I think, you know, they, they would have done market research post launch and thinking actually this isn't going to give us the demand just isn't there so that's probably what's happening i don't know um but i'm i'm really as i said at the time of the launch i am really hopeful about its prospects from a b2b point of view i can definitely see creative producers buying this piece of kit and it just transforming not only how you kind of do your traditional zoom meetings but how we begin to look at hybrid working in a truly interactive digital environment because you know i've not had not been lucky enough to try this new piece of kit but apparently it's incredible oh it is astonishing it really is you should and 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 it is amazing and it's exactly the sort of stuff that people like you and i love it's you know really immersive take you to what's particularly interesting about it though is it it can you can sort of sort sort of see through the uh the, the, the lenses a bit not entirely but but a bit but that still raises the biggest problem for me at the moment. The most important people in the in this world are teenage girls. They're the ones who have come up with all the new words and all the new ideas. And they're the ones who made Elvis a star. And they're the ones really who made Facebook a thing. And these people are the most important trendsetters in in in, in the world. Find me a fourteen year old girl who wants to partially blind themselves amongst uh, a, 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 a mixed group of of teenagers. Making yourself vulnerable like this is okay if you're big and strong like Omar and if you're at least big uh, like me. Uh, I, I think that uh, it, 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 it's a harder sell to the most important constituency in the world, which is it's teenage girls. Well, well, that's why I think there may be a place for it in a home environment where you're by yourself and it just ends up replacing your home office. Not only for the big monitor and the fancy computer, the fancy computer is now on your eyes. Yeah. So, you know... I completely agree. Who so wants, it sounds, like, who, a black, it sounds who, like a BlackBerry rather than an Apple phone, though, doesn't it? That's yeah, a, yeah that, perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps you know, I don't want to be walking around with a headset. You know, I don't. You know, but, but, you know, <laughs> for the two hours that you can walk around with it with the battery pack, I mean, yeah. it's it's a yeah. It yeah, seems like the, an at home. If this is if there's a way to transform hybrid working, then for particularly for creative community, then I can see I can see a, I, I can see a niche application for it, B two B application. But yeah, I don't really see this as kind of like the future of television, if I can put it that way. Well, they did say the same thing about the iPhone and it seems like practically every other product that Apple's ever made. So you never know. Uh, embrace uncertainty about the future. And with that, we'll have to leave it there. Mike, thank you so much for coming back and speaking with us. You can read Mike's column on our website at themedialeader.co.uk. Mike, Omar, a pleasure as always. Thanks, Roger. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.